This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, The Legendary Dog Whistle Brandon. Today on DWB, I sit down with Army veteran and West Point graduate Andrew Wogamuth, co-founder and CEO of Wove, a 21st century online jeweler bringing the jewelry design experience directly to couples for custom engagement ring creation. Wove ensures couples love their final ring before they make the investment by providing a free replica to try it at home. This is my second time getting to interview Andrew, the first being on the Transition Podcast, where we talk about his transition out of the military and eventual founding of Wove. For Dog Whistle Branding, I wanted to pick up where we left off, specifically discussing his go-to-market experience after raising more than $3 million in seed funding. Andrew and I talked through how he's deploying capital as they chase the elusive product market fit, including why he invested heavily in branding early on, as well as the landmines he sees ahead and how he plans to navigate them. By having Andrew on to share his experience, as well as the other amazing guests we've had thus far, we're getting one step closer to building the premier go-to-market playbook for the veteran community. All right, enough of me talking. Gunny, get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding. Brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of dog whistle branding, founder of Ironbound Media and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper and get ready to build a dog whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. My man, my brother, Andrew. Welcome to Dog Whistle Branding. What's going on, Mike? Yeah, thanks so much, man. Excited to uh, get to chat with you again. Dude, just like I was telling you before we went live, you know, it's great having guests on my podcast, but nothing beats actually hanging out in person. And hanging out with y'all for dinner after day one of Milvet was epic. Yeah, I was, uh, I totally concur. Um, I was blown away by a lot of the people that I got to meet and interact with there. Some awesome vets building really cool businesses. It's pretty neat. We take it for granted when you're in the military, right? Especially for officers, you know, actuals talk to actuals, right? So we got our, you know, you can always go talk to another platoon commander or have the company commander pull you in. Then all of a sudden you become an entrepreneur and you're out in the wild by yourself. You ain't got that officer's mess. And so these conferences, even though it's once a year, dude, it's super refreshing to be able to come together and like share lessons learned and talk to other actuals. A hundred percent. I mean, I have, I have an amazing co-founder. Um, I have one co-founder, uh, but we live in different states. You know, we interact every day, but it's, it's not the same. Um, I completely agree. Being in the same room as a bunch of other people, you know, going through the same struggles, trying to make ends meet, trying to make it work. Uh, it's motivating. My man, Andrew's got the little microphone now. He's, he's stepped his game <laughs> up since we last podcast. Um, I see you. I appreciate you. Um, bring our listeners up to speed who may not be familiar with Wove. And then I want to jump into how are you managing the pressure of leading a company post such a giant raise? 
Yeah, uh, it's been a really exciting year for us. Um, so for our listeners that aren't familiar with Wove, um, essentially Wove is changing the way that couples purchase engagement rings. And we're really looking to be the lifelong jeweler for our clients. So um, what's different about Wove than your typical jewelry company is essentially the engagement ring buying experience. Um, if you're familiar with Warby Parker, this is always the example we use because it's easy for people to understand. We have a very similar business model. So couples will come to our site, They'll complete a really quick design quiz that allows us to match them with one of our highly talented jewelry designers. They'll get on a Zoom call, design an engagement ring with the help of a designer, and then within seven days, we deliver a realistic replica ring to their house. Um, and these replicas look and feel indistinguishable from the final ring, but it's really a way for couples to purchase with confidence that the ring they're buying online remotely is actually what they want. Um, if they like it, we'll build them the real thing and they can keep the replica as a travel ring or adventure ring. So uh, if you're boxing and you don't want to bust up your nice engagement ring, uh, you probably want to take the replica ring off if you're boxing anyhow, but um, it's a way to essentially you know, purchase online with confidence uh, an engagement ring. And so we're really excited. You know, we launched this about a year ago. It's going really well. We recently raised our seed round of funding uh, through some amazing venture capital firms, um, including Context Ventures, which is a veteran founded firm. Um, and we're actually in the process of launching our own fashion jewelry lines. Uh, so essentially providing follow on purchase opportunity for those couples that uh, purchase their wedding bands or engagement rings from Wove. So you raised, I think it was $3.85 million. This is all publicly available information. It was up on TechCrunch magazine. But again, so many entrepreneurs think that raising money is going to solve all their problems. But it's like, man, you're just beginning. That's the early stages. So like, again, how are you managing the pressure of that? And from a go-to-market perspective, like, what do you do once you start raising that much money? Like, what are you focused on to drive uh, customer acquisition? Yeah, I, I think money is, you know, money is obviously great because it buys you time and opportunity as a founder, but by no means does it solve your problems. And even 3.5 million um, sometimes feels like it's not enough. Um, and I'm sure it never does. Um, but essentially, you know, for us, the big focus is, has been making our initial product offering work and reaching product market fit. Um, so that's thrown around a lot um, in the entrepreneurial uh, ecosphere. Uh, but essentially what I mean by that for us specifically is when I look at our process and our sales funnel, um, making sure that our conversions work so that we can get to a point where I can just essentially pour more gasoline on the fire, pour more money into ads and scale the business. So for me, like the, the big thing that I've been learning um, recently is is the importance of, of tracking progress and tracking changes. Um, you know, you'll, you'll A-B test just about everything, but if you're not actually tracking very closely what you're A-B testing, um, you know, it's very easy to lose track. Um, but for us specifically, um, you know, we kept ad spending uh, at a pretty consistent point the last year. Um, and we've been experiencing growth, but it's not growth from ads, it's growth from refining our product, um, making it more efficient. And you know, recently what's been really exciting is we're kind of hitting this point where we're uh, becoming much more efficient at turning ad spend into revenue. And we're kind of 
going from early product market fit to now scaling the business. Um, so it's been a really cool transition going from, you know, uh, kind of going through that, that transition. We'll continue to refine our product to make it more efficient, but we're excited to get to uh, what I would now kind of deem as the scaling phase of the business. Congratulations, man. Good for you. I know it has been an easy road just to get to this point. Andrew and I both went through uh, Stanford Ignite for post 9-11 veterans, albeit at different times. I went in 2017. And did you go 2019 or 2020? 2020, I think. 2020. And so it's cool that we go through these programs and we're entrepreneurs, right? So that was like early days of it. So it's been cool to follow your journey. I've been thinking about something, right? This product market fit thing, right? And I want to break this down for our listeners. You identified through your family's background, and you can go listen to the Transition Podcast uh, for my interview with him to learn a little bit more about that. But you know the jewelry space, right? Here's what we know. People buy engagement rings. They want to get married. They're going to need engagement rings. Market opportunity, okay? Now, you're introducing this model of D2C for engagement rings. And what I want to know is I don't think you're the first person to think of this, okay? You're probably right. So yeah. I'm sure when – Warby Parker launch, everyone was thinking, well, what else can we sell online? What are the challenges with the space that you're operating in? And how did you see an, an, um, an opportunity that you could take advantage of? Yeah. And I think it also comes down to like execution, like execution is everything. There's, you know, I, great ideas are cheap, uh, but if you can't execute on them, uh, it's really meaningless. Um, so for us, you're, you're completely right. Really like the, my background in the industry actually, you know, it was very helpful, but um, it only got us partway there. But the, the, the way that it uh, helped a lot was exactly what you said, which was understanding the customer journey intimately. Uh, and that helped us to understand these pain points that customers were experiencing. Um, but beyond that, it really came down to executing and you know, building cheap MVPs, testing those over time, uh, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, um, kind of getting us to the point where we're at now where we can finally scale. But it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, you know, a year ago, we would have said we had product market fit. And I think if, you know, my co-founder and I went back in time and, you know, it's almost laughable now because we're like, no, there's no way we were at product market fit. Um, at the time, product market fit to us was there's a market for this and people want it. And I think that is important. What we didn't have was we didn't have a model that was scalable. We had uh, a product offering that people enjoyed, but the business model, uh, the conversion rates through our sales funnel didn't check out. And so for us, really refining the digital product to build an experience that we can actually put ad dollars behind and grow, to me, that's uh, a, a much more refined version of product market fit. So. Yeah, but uh, to your point, like I think understanding the, the customer pain points, customer journey is really the, the first thing that you have to uh, ensure you really understand. I want to talk about perfect customer. Before we do, I want to talk about brand. And you're going to understand why, because I had an aha after talking to you. But I want to say this about product market fit. I follow Michael Siebel from White Combinator. And he says, when you find product market fit, shit starts breaking. You know, it's just this wave of just, you know, it's one thing to be able, okay, we can sell our product, we can earn revenue. But when you think about like Zoom during the pandemic, you start getting customer complaints, all this other stuff, because you're having trouble keeping up, fulfilling demand, et cetera, et cetera. That's what he talks about product market fit. They say, you know it. When you hit it, you are going to feel it. Um, and you're going to start to try have to scale your team. So I want to say that. 
well, you and I talk, right? You invested heavily in branding up front, mm-hmm. all right? Um, everything from the design, the website, everything. And we were talking back and forth, and I thought it was so interesting because it's very hard for startups to spend so much money up front, right? Especially when you haven't found product market fit. But here's where I had the aha. You initially showed up to the market as a luxury jeweler. And when you use the word luxury, people are expecting certain things. They're not expecting a, you know, mom and pop made brand aesthetic, right? You, they're expecting Tiffany's. They're expecting, you know, Mercedes and Lexus. And so uh, now I see why those decisions you made early on in terms of investing so heavily. But I want to talk some more about that category because in my mind, I'm thinking, how do you untiff Tiffany's? Yeah, no, I honestly, uh, when you brought this up to me at the conference, it's it was such a good reminder um, of, you know, create a new category. Don't try to compete with Tiffany's. Don't try to compete with with Signet, which is the largest jewelry company in the U.S. They own like Zales, Jared's, um, James Allen. Um, but create a new category. And really, it, it's so true. So early on in the business, our pre-seed, we raised 850000 And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but uh, a large chunk of that money went directly to branding, which goes against like all conventional wisdom in entrepreneurship. Uh, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on building out a brand, a beautiful website, um, and the idea behind it was that if we want to compete with these luxury brands, we had to build a brand that looked like it belonged, that a brand that could essentially demand a $10,000 price tag on an engagement ring. Um, and so, you know, I don't have complete regret for doing that because we did get a beautiful brand. And I actually think the branding agency that we worked with called Bullish is an amazing consumer brand. They do really nice work. And I actually believe that they were pretty helpful in allowing us to raise the size of the uh, seed round that we ended up raising. Um, But what is even more important than branding is creating a category where you know you can win. Um, And if you can't win in your category, you create that category. And so for us, I stopped looking at, you know, luxury jewelry as our category and started looking at what do we actually provide the consumer that's different from Tiffany's and Blue Nile. And so for us, you know, the category is, is really uh, custom uh, home try-on jewelry. Uh, it's really creating an experience that doesn't exist around the engagement ring. And so we are the only jewelry company that actually provides uh, custom replica rings that are sent directly to your home. And uh, really what that does for consumers is it allows them to see the design that they created and to buy with full confidence online. Um, and so really by creating this category, by creating this experience, really that's what we're selling to consumers. Because uh, jewelry ultimately is a commodity. Um, you know, you can look up what a gram of gold costs. You can look up what a one carat DVS2 diamond should cost. Um, and everyone essentially prices jewelry and diamonds like a commodity. Uh, you know, Tiffany can maybe get away with selling their diamonds at, you know, two to 3% margin higher than us. But at the end of the day, uh, you're really selling a brand or you're selling an experience. And so we chose to focus on the experience. I don't want you to beat yourself up too much about the decision you made because you went off of your gut and your instincts. And, you know, it's it's great. We can playbook this stuff. And, oh, yeah, man, this is how you should do it. Yada, yada, yada. 
but everyone's playbook is different. And you had a hunch either way that you're trying to take customers from the Tiffany's of the world and that they expect certain things. And part of that is having a brand that says, take my money. And by and large, I think that's what you did. And so now, you know, we're able to share these lessons on the front lines, but you were in it and you made a decision and you are successful, right? You're off to the races. So, uh, yeah, man, kudos to you on that. And kudos to you for making the decision to invest heavily in branding up front because I follow one of the agencies, Red Antler. Um, I read her yeah. book, Obsessed. We actually, uh, they're one of like the three branding agencies that we considered. Uh, Red Antler, they're awesome. And they've played at this game. The Red Antlers, the Bullish, and they've probably said, look, if you want to play at this level and you want to win, this is what it's going to take. Um, and so, again, jewelry is one of those things, like that's a very sensitive you know, purchase for people. That is not just like, oh, I go, boom. You know, there's build up, there's all that other stuff. And a guy expect a certain, they expect a certain brand. And so I think you guys delivered on that. Now, I'm curious to learn from you, okay? As a brand strategist, right? We do all these branding exercises. We talk about category, right? All this stuff behind the scenes. How do you actually take that and start implementing it? Because what I notice more often than not, people do these brand sprints and we do all this planning and strategy, but then it just like dies in a Google drive somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think the, like, obviously, you know, you build a brand book, you implement it on your site, it influences your ads, um, you know, in all the obvious ways. But I think the other thing that branding really helped us do is identify exactly who is your target customer and where do you find them? Um, where are, you know, the other brands that, that fall into the category where they would be shopping, how do those brands reach them? Um, and so for us, that was really helpful. I mean, uh, we get a lot of our clients actually on LinkedIn, which is surprising. Uh, and I think it's, you know, when you actually break it down, it's, it's not as surprising as you might think. I mean, we're looking for young professionals that don't have the time or don't want to take the time to spend a Saturday going to three different jewelry stores. And a lot of those people live on LinkedIn. We also meet a lot of our customers through bridal publications and on bridal Instagram pages. We have a lot of influencers that actually market specifically to women uh, that are planning their weddings and men that are planning their weddings. But ultimately, you know, finding your target customer in the right place at the right time is so important for us. Like you said, like an engagement ring is one of the most significant purchases a couple will make in their lifetime. Um, you know, typically they only make it once. Uh, they, it's one of the most expensive purchases they'll ever make. It literally represents symbolically the love that they have for each other. And so this momentous occasion in a couple's life needs to be met with a momentous experience and in a, in a wonderful product. Um, and so, uh, you know, what's difficult about selling engagement rings is you have to catch someone in a, basically a three to six month window. Uh, that only exists maybe once for that person, and you have to snatch them there. And so for us, you know, understanding through branding who is your target consumer and where do you find them was really helpful for us. With that in mind, talk to us about who you thought your perfect customer was, so that initial thesis, and who, who you actually found out it was. Yeah. Um, so the, the personas that we built um, – I don't think the personas that we built are that surprising. We do attract a lot of those target customers, but I will say what has been surprising for us, uh, a persona that we weren't anticipating was actually a lot of military. Um, I think because of the fact that my co-founder and I come from the military, 
we have a lot of established trust with a military audience, but also military are great clients for a couple of reasons. And our sales team loves working with, with military because they show up to meetings on time. Um, a lot of our business relies on having uh, people show up to their consultations. Uh, military service members typically show up on time for things. They're respectful, they're driven, and they don't mess around. And so that was a persona of customer that we were not anticipating uh, being some of our best. And that's a persona that now we're actually pretty actively pursuing. That surprises me, though, given your background as a West Point grad, Army Ranger, you know <laughs> the reality of people deploying, yeah. right? Um, sometimes a ring, even the replica ring, is that commitment for people. Right. Like, hey, well, I'm a lot committed of people to propose you. with it. A lot of our clients propose with the replica, and they come back with their partner. They'll make some minor changes, and then they purchase the real thing. So I'm curious to know, why did you not see that? Ah, gosh. I mean, I think I was so set on providing this luxury experience that I didn't put myself in that, that category. Like I didn't put military in the category of luxury. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of hindsight is, you know, 2020, but kind of watching how our business has developed and the people that we attract, um, our military audience is like one of our favorite client bases to service. Um, and it's been like a really pleasant surprise because, you know, obviously it's very special for Brian and I serving military members. You know, nothing is more fun for us than shipping a replica ring to an APO address overseas or helping someone on base design an engagement ring that they get to propose with. That's really special for us. But yeah, admittedly, it's not something I saw coming. I'm just thinking out loud here. All right. So go with me. Um, a jeweler. No different than, uh, I don't know, a doctor, right, or a dentist or a barber that you've had in your corner for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years. Like, the only jeweler I would say close to that for me is Zachary's, and that's in Annapolis. Yeah. And that's only because it was right next to the Naval Academy. A guy like me, I don't have a jeweler that I feel like I can go to and trust. And I'm just thinking out loud, and I told you this, is like I have a beautiful partner named Simone. Right? We're going to get married at some point. Right? It's going to be Zachary. Is it going to be Wove? Better be Wove. Right? <laughs> but I'm thinking about Wove right now because you can give people that experience, that, yeah. you know, that home jeweler experience where it's like wherever you are in the world, you have a home here with Wove. Yeah. And I got to grow up with that. So my family is jewelry business called Kozer Jewelers. It's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, was like a really central part of my upbringing. And it's an amazing the uh, the loyalty that our community has to their business because they serve people incredibly well. Um, those are lasting relationships that aren't just transactional. And so really that's what we're trying to provide through this online custom experience as well is taking that hometown jeweler feel and doing it on a you know national scale through an e-commerce company. So the way that we do that specifically is when you come to Wove, you submit that quiz, we match you with the designer and we match you with the designer based on not just your preferences, but also things like, you know, are you buying on the East Coast or the West Coast? Uh, does your style coincide with the style that this designer is talented at designing? And so we match you with this designer. And the idea is that that designer becomes your jewelry uh, associate for life. 
Um, they'll understand your style. They'll know what you like. They can make recommendations to you from our jewelry selection. And so really, you know, we're starting at this company focused on bridal uh, jewelry, you know, engagement rings, wedding bands. But the goal is to be the lifelong jeweler for our consumers. And so that's why we're launching jewelry um, actually end of this week. So that's why I just made that comment, because I can see it. Right. I can see where you're starting out that beachhead, you know, serving military veterans and spouses and where you can go. And so I'm going to ask you this. Right. Who else meets the persona? Similar to military. I mean, I'm thinking out loud. State Department, right? Yeah. Um, uh, first responders, right? That co whole community. That whole community, um, absolutely. I think that, you know, the, the military background for us kind of still uh, parallels all of those other amazing organizations. And a lot of those people are attracted to us. The other group, surprisingly, that is also attracted to us is engineers, software engineers, civil, mechanical, and the reason being, and this is surprising to me as well, but these are the types of people that love designing and building things. And so when an engineer designs an engagement ring at Wove, and then they see their design show up in a box to their house in seven days, it's like euphoric for them. They're like, holy cow, like I built this, I designed this, all the specifications are perfect. Um, and so that's been a really cool niche as well that that we've really liked targeting is, you know, software engineers. Well, think about what you just said there, okay? Because I just taught a class on this with Alliance Pride for our customer activation cycle. Where does your perfect customer hang out, right? So you think engineering, engineering conferences, okay? There's an organization out there called the National Society of Black Engineers, short for NSBE, right? You have the Civil Engineering Society. You got the podcast. You got all these different things, right? Those are just those. That's more mechanical. And then you start talking about like software engineers, right? Where do they tend to hang out? The universities, right? The hackathons. But then we say, okay, we're a luxury jeweler, right? So they need to be able to afford us, right? Maybe these are the engineers working at Google, working at the Facebooks of the world and stuff. And so now we can start to really refine and say, okay, how are we going to fish where the fish are? Now you're running this org, right? Again, you got a lot of venture capital invested. You can't pivot as quick as an agency like me. What does pivoting look like at your level? So when you were like, yo, we're doing really good with military veterans. We need to focus on this market. How do you yeah. move your entire team to focus on that? Is it as simple as, hey, we're in the room. We're making this decision. We're updating the social and stuff today. Or is it, hey, we're going to do this behind the scenes and see where it gets us? So I, I think the, the benefit, right, is that, um, you know, our experience of serving people really well doesn't change whether we're serving an engineer, whether we're serving a military person. You know, serving someone well is serving someone well. And so our design and custom process remain the same. So most of our team really doesn't have to pivot. The team that obviously has to pivot the most is, is you know, marketing. And how do we find these people? How do we reach them? Um, so like the easiest way I can say this, you know, for military specifically, one of the things that we're doing is, is working on the relationship with AFES, which is essentially like the target of the military. Every military installation through the US um, and abroad has exchanges. Um, you got in the Navy, Air Force, Army, and you know these uh, target-like department stores are areas where we can reach them. AFES also has the 12th largest e-commerce store in the nation, so we're getting plugged in there. Um, that's one simple way that we are reaching our audience. For the engineers, another way that we're doing it is we're advertising on sites where you are most likely to find engineers. 
Uh, so I'm trying to remember the names of these, but there's like a lot of websites that have uh, their databases for code, uh, open source code that engineers can go to. And so these are sites where we're either advertising on the websites or we're essentially retargeting after they visit a site like, you know, like one of those. I'm also thinking out loud here again, military officers and military in general, right? They were getting married all the time at the service academy, especially those seniors. Yeah. Right. So you think about West Point, that high school sweetheart, same thing in Navy, Air Force and stuff, et cetera. Why they need to go to Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. I want to put a big billboard. We're looking into this actually this week, yeah. uh, putting a big billboard right outside Highland Falls at West Point. Um, you know, we love working with cadets. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's very reminiscent for us, but also it's just a fun demographic to, to work with. And so, um, yeah, no, a hundred percent. That's a absolutely, you know, a target audience for us. Cause I'm just thinking out loud, right. Having that replica is a game changer because now it buys you a little bit more time and you know, you're graduating, you got a whole lot of life and stuff going on, but to be able to have that and ease into it. And then you think about, Oh, all the other ROTCs, Corps cadets at Texas A&M, Virginia Military Institute. And the reason I, I bring this stuff up was even when we're at Milvet, right? I forgot his name. He's actually coming on the podcast too, who has the book Crossing the Chasm. Oh, yeah. Okay. And yeah. one of the things he talked about was when Spotify entered the U.S. market, they focused on like 12 universities and they knew them like the back of their hand. And that's where they focused. And so it's always hard for us to be like, okay, we need to focus our effort and attention here, right? We can't be everywhere at once, but like really honing in and saying, okay, how are we going to dominate? You think about Facebook. Facebook dominated Harvard. Then they dominated some of the other Ivies. And then they start going into the state schools and work their way around. And so just thinking about that out loud about like, man, where can we really hone in and dominate? Like be the number one, um, you know, what is the category? Re replica engagement ring? Yeah, I probably need to refine the language around that. But um, I would say, you know, custom engagement ring uh, paired with at-home trial and experience, really. Like consultative commerce meets at-home trial and experience. Uh, now, you know more about D2C um, than I do at this point, probably. One, just being on the front lines and everything. But one of the things we saw was that the Warby Parkers eventually had to have an in-person in store. The same yep. thing for the Caspers, because people were like, yo, we're spending a lot of this money online. We need to walk in and try stuff on. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, that we we are looking for opportunities to go omni-channel. Um, right now, we're still seeing such exciting growth uh, with our e-commerce experience. We're really invested there. Um, but really, the plan for us um, is to, within the next 18 to 24 months, look at opening up either a pop-up experience. We've talked to a couple of different consultants that do uh, pop-ups for brands um, in like a New York or even testing it out on military bases. I mean, that's one thing that we are privy to that most of our competitors aren't is access to military installations. And so getting plugged in with an AFES or getting in person at a PX uh, and running a pop-up would be something that, you know, we're absolutely interested in, in testing. The other major benefit that we have that other jewelers don't have is that one of the biggest um, upfront costs for most jewelry companies is inventory. Uh, most small brick and mortar jewelry stores will spend, you know, upwards of 
you know, millions of dollars on inventory that essentially just ties up cash. It sits in your, your, uh, your cases and you hope you sell it. For us, we um, are experts at building replicas that look and feel real of our engagement rings. And so now we're doing that not only with our bridal collection, but also with jewelry to build out lines of low cost, but beautiful looking jewelry that we can then put in physical retail and really test this experience before investing millions of dollars into um, actual real inventory. And that could actually be a tactical advantage for you. Oh, I think 100%. Um, and frankly, you know, we might never transition away from putting replica uh, or really what we call brass and glass jewelry in physical retail because, you know, there's so many benefits. One, it doesn't tie up cash for the business. Two, your insurance costs are much lower. Um, it gives people the ability to test things out before they make the final purchase. Um, but yeah, no, we are, we're absolutely, you know, excited to take that next step here shortly and, and get in some physical retail. Is that actual name brass and glass jewelry? It's not an actual name. I think it's just what the industry calls like fake, uh, fake replicas. Got it. So I'm thinking through something here, right? Again, going back to category categories, create jobs where jobs didn't previously exist. I know it's hard for people to remember, but there was a time when digital marketing specialist wasn't a role you could get hired for at a company. You know, social media manager wasn't a thing, right? These are what came out of the emergence of social media as a category. So as you're thinking about this online jeweler, right, in general, think about those jobs, those roles. You know, what are you creating? You're literally creating a whole new industry. And when you think about Uber, right? When Uber introduced ride sharing, even though they were getting sued by the taxi companies, yeah. the ride sharing market in general grew. The taxi industry grew because all of a sudden they were creating so much demand that Uber wasn't going to fill it all that now all of a sudden people were like, you know what? I didn't want to drive my car anymore. I'm going to take taxi. So when you introduce these categories in, right, you start to um, grow the market in general. So, like, everyone is going to eat. And I think there's a potential around the replica, right? So, who knows? You know, you nail this category. Now people are buying more cubic zirconia. You know, now people are looking at replica and other things. Um, and that's what gets me excited when I start talking about category. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, we never intended it this way, but a lot of our couples um, will buy the replica, propose, and then they'll come back with their partner, make the changes, get the real diamond. And so it's like a fail safe way of proposing. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about the fact that if, if she's going to like the ring or not, because you can either propose and come back and get the exact same thing, or you can make those changes. Uh, so yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, that was something that kind of happened by accident for us. So hoping that that continues to, to grow. That could be a cool video. The guy pulls out the ring at a game or something, proposes, and she gives him a look. She like, hates ah, it. <laughs> I don't know. You know, thankfully, there's Wove. You know, then they go yeah. in together, they go online, they update it, and now, you know, she's a happy camper. Uh, I, I like that. We could also just make the ring really ugly, too. So it's like, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Now, I know it ain't all sunshine and rainbows, right? It's a lot of stress, and there's no certainties, right? I, I like to say the enemy has a choice. Right. And the enemy is the market and the consumer at times. Right. So I'm going to have a whole episode on that. But what are the landmines ahead of you and how are you navigating them? 
landmines ahead of us. There, I mean, you always kind of run into red tape um, no matter what you're doing. I think for us, like looking back, um, this was really painful to do, but it's also one of the reasons that we chose to take the venture route versus bootstrapping is for like a direct-to-consumer e-commerce company that you're consistently A-B testing what works and what doesn't work until you reach product market fit. You have to be okay with spending money. Um, and it's super painful. Like I came from a conservative background where like every dollar counts and um, you know, you're never wasteful with money. Um, I certainly wouldn't say that we were ever wasteful with money, but you have to spend a lot of money to figure out what works. And you, um, one piece of advice that I got from another e-commerce uh, entrepreneur was like, keep spending, keep spending money, keep testing. And, you know, eventually you will find what works. Um, Oftentimes by like poking a million holes in your business model, you figure out, you know, what is the business model. Um, but for us specifically around our consultation experience, um, we've altered that, that customer journey, altered the UX, altered how we advertise uh, so many times. And only until like the last really three months have we gotten to a point where, hey, like this is repeatable. Um, we have a good return on ad spend and like this process works. Um, but yeah, keep spending money. So with that, right, as we wrap up here, we have listeners that are soon to be raising capital or they just raised capital and they're about to make those next three to five decisions that are going to drive their company for the next 90 to 180 days. And so as someone who's been in that hot seat of we raised the capital, shaking hands, kissing babies, that now what moment, what should they be focused on? Yeah, I guess one, like the first thing is make sure you actually want to raise capital. Um, if I could have bootstrapped Wove or, or you know, not raised venture, um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have. Like, I, I love my VCs. They're great advisors. But at the end of the day, you also give up a slice of your baby um, by giving up equity. Um, but what I would say is like really intimately understand your go-to-market strategy and how much time you think you need. And then backwards plan and look at burn rate and see, do we have the time here to actually execute the plan? Um, and if not, you either need to raise more money or you need to change the plan. Um, and so that's, that's glaringly obvious. But I think a lot of people get money and they have all these things they want to try, uh, but they don't have a consistent course of action to implement that uh, is well thought out. So um, for us, it was always backwards planning and making sure that we had the money to execute. In terms of resources on go-to-market, where did you get that information from? Was it the investors that you were working with? You know, what's been a great resource for you? Um, I mean, we developed our go-to-market strategy internally, um, but we did consult with all of our VCs. Um, one of the things that was really helpful for us is we were very specific about who we chose as investors. Um, we had an opportunity for a, a couple different firms to lead our, our seed round, um, which isn't always the case. We were very lucky, but we specifically chose VCs that were not only investors, but were also previous operators themselves that had started um, companies successfully and grown them. And so one thing I'll say, like coming out as a veteran, oftentimes you feel like you don't have this network, like, you know, a typical Stanford undergrad might have. Um, but I, I promise like that veteran network exists and you can find people within the veteran network that have been successful operators. So find those people, um, pitch them your plan and then let them coach you. 
Yeah, you just got to work it. You know, you got to show up to events. You got to engage. You got to be in. And you'll start seeing things that you didn't realize were there. And so one of the things I'm doing in all my platforms is helping do some ecosystem mapping for that. That includes having you on, man. And I appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, what you're um, seeing from the front lines of D2C. Now, we've got listeners tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. What can we do to help support and elevate you as you're in this fight with Wove? Yeah. Uh, well, first and foremost, like, please check us out. Uh, Wovemade.com is our website. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, uh, Facebook. So please check us out. Follow us. Um, everyone that follows us that, you know, just adds one more node to our network. And um, it's really cool to see how like secondary and tertiary relationships turn into great client uh, relationships for us. Awesome. I'll be sure to include a link to those in the show notes. And for all our listeners that are tuning in, as always, I appreciate you. Make sure you subscribe to the Dog Whistle Branding Newsletter at the link in the show notes. There's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter. Drop your boy an email at mikeweareironbound.com or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy for veteran-owned businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by the Lions Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. Thank you.